I'm amazed at this letter, and I, I don't know how you can read it and come away thinking that you can live a sloppy life. I just I don't know how you can do it. It is so prevalent today, in, and you know this, in many Christian circles, it's so prevalent that it is sin is not an exception, it's an expectation. It's not something that is a once in a while occurrence, it is expected to be a daily activity, a daily occurrence in people's lives. And uh, I'm telling you that that this apostle stood against such a, a um, idea and perspective and he drilled it home from so many angles dealing with love. He mentions the word love several times throughout this epistle, numerous times. He mentions love and, and talks about the love of God, what it means to love God, what it means to know God. He talks about that's his whole purpose in writing. The church, quite frankly, when you read this, you'll, you'll get a sense that there's some, there's some old-timers in this church that aren't moved. They're fathers. They've known him that's from the beginning. And there's some strong young men in it. But there's, there's some new converts. There's some folks that are, are young and immature in their faith. And they're, quite frankly, shaken. The biggest prey of the enemy is the new convert. That's the easiest prey for him to get. You know, you need to so grow and live your life that you become a very difficult target for the devil. I don't want to be an easy target. I, I, want, I want to make his, if he gets me, I don't want him to get me, okay? I mean, I, I'm not interested in that. My, my point is, is you got to make yourself a more difficult target to get to. But there's obviously some folks that are shaken. And, uh, and John is writing to confirm them uh, nine times, nine times. And again, as I, as I, I kind of deal with this, there's a, I'm just going to start with this point right here because John, this is the way his letter is. And when I'm going through this, I'm thinking, wow, this point here. And John is just, he brings so many ways that he attacks the problem. Uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to, to see just a you know, uh, some kind of train of thought that is systematic throughout it. His message is clear, and he hammers it home from so many ways and avenues, but it's difficult to, to outline in just a, um, a, a, a logical, straightforward mindset. But nine times in this epistle, you'll see this phrase, little children. Little children. Look at it. It appears chapter 2. And verse 1, my little children, these things I write. And I think John, there, he, but he, he uses two Greek words. Now, it's, it's actually only little children's and two English words, but it's one Greek word. But he uses two different Greek words uh, to express this idea, which is the idea of one who's an infant or immature. This, this one, the idea can express the idea also of like a darling uh, you know, when you take my little child, my little darling. Uh, but if you just look at these occurrences, and John will, will talk about them. For example, chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. He probably doesn't have to tell that to the old fathers, those that have been through the fire. 
There's some things that I preach that some of you, you can just say, praise God, brother, we got that, we got that down. But there's some that's immature. They need to hear it. And John is having to drive this home to the little children, to, the, to those that are, are immature. Verse 12, he mentions it. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, when you're reading 1 John, keep in mind things that he said because he keeps stressing these points. He keeps stressing these points. Where did we hear about this business of forgiveness already? Back in chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John is saying, you're in, okay? I understand you're in. You are cleansed from sin. God has forgiven you. But he said, I'm, I'm writing to you because you are one that is walking with God. and But notice, how did you get to walk with God? How did you get to where you are? Because Christ has forgiven you of your sins. That's how you got there. He will reach it again in verse 13. Now, in verse 13, though, interestingly, it's a different Greek word. In verse 13 and verse 18, the word that is used in chapter 2 and verse 1, chapter 2 and verse 12, and then we're going to see a couple of occurrences in chapter 3, one in chapter 4 and one in chapter 5. I'll get there in just a moment. Is the Greek word technion. And this emphasizes kinship or affection. It's like saying someone, my, my little darling. But it's the idea of being related to somebody. And, and you're, it's in a term of affection. But the term that is used in verse 13 and verse 18 in chapter 2 is the Greek word paideon. Paideon is how we say it. Paideon. And this emphasizes subordination, consequently authority. Children are typically under authority when you talk about my child. So there's, you can talk about and say, son, and it could be a term of affection, endearment. It's still a sense that you're going to instruct, but you're seeing this one as one that's younger, immature, son, you need to do this. But then there's also times you speak, and it's not so much emphasizing affection, it's emphasizing authority. Son, you need to do this now. Son, and you're not so much speaking it as a term of affection and relationship, but that uh, you're under authority here, you're not in authority. And you need to listen to this instruction. And that's, that's the word used in verse 13. In the last part of that, right, I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. Emphasizing again that they have known God, that they are in relationship with Him. And John is writing to them as one that is in authority. So he's letting them know that his writing is not merely advice, it's not merely counsel. But I want you to know you are under uh, authority here and you've known the Father. You've known the Father's love. You've also known the Father's authority. And when you got saved, see first he just mentioned affection, your sins are forgiven you. But when you got saved, you came under Father's authority, okay? So you've known the Holy Father, Heavenly Father, and now I'm writing some things to you. He mentions again in verse 18, little children, it is the last time. Now, this is that word, um, 
uh, paidion, which means, is again, emphasizing authority. It is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come even now, are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it's the last time. So this is like a warning of an authority. Little child, my child, it's the last time. They're shaken, they're struggling, they're troubled because of the people that have come in and are saying things that you can live this way. And this is not how they've been taught. They've not been taught to live this way. And, but, the, but these people are claiming knowledge of God. They're claiming relationship with God. They're claiming fellowship with God. They're claiming relationship with Jesus Christ. They're claiming to have the knowledge of Christ. Are they right? Are they wrong? Is what we taught were what we taught wrong? And John says, let me tell you, it's the last time. And Antichrist are rampant. That's how we know it's the last time. Did you hear that? The more, and John describes an Antichrist as one who denies Jesus coming in the flesh. And that's not denying theologically the incarnation. There are a lot of folks who do not deny the, the, the theology of the incarnation or even the fact of the incarnation. What they deny is the practical outworking of the incarnation and the application of it. Anybody can sit and say, I believe God was flesh. I believe God became a man. Praise God, he died for me. That's wonderful. God became a flesh. That's fine. Now, what's it mean for your life? Because that God that died for you and became flesh is now living and wants to live in you. And if that Christ is living in you in your flesh, we should expect the same character. And the power of the incarnation is the power to live a righteous life in flesh. And so... If that was true in John's day, whenever one of the notes that makes this an end time is whenever people are going to profess Christianity but deny the practical application of the incarnation. Paul said it this way, they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. The form of godliness, they have a theological framework. They go to church, they worship, they pay tithes, they have worship centers, they call themselves Christian. But the power of that is denied. And that's what, you can admit the fact of the incarnation, but if you deny the power of the incarnation, you are antichrist. Because you're against what Christ came to do. So, John is writing this business with authority. Just want to look at these verses. In verse 28, it's mentioned again. He uses the phrase, and now, little children. Now is that term of affection in this verse, verse, technion. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We'll come back to the verse later because there's some other things I want to emphasize. But now he looks to them with terms of endearment. My child, stay in Christ. When he says this, abide, he's saying, don't leave. Don't get out of this thing. Don't back up on it. Stay right there in Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody put, pull you away from that. You stay in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, he mentions it in verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. 
He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Let no man deceive you, little child. That's, you know, this term again of affection. And he's reaching to them. You can hear his voice. You can hear his concern as a father in the faith. Catch the flow of it up to this point. I don't, I don't want you to sin. I'm writing to you. I don't want you to sin. No, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you because you know the Father. I'm writing to you to tell you that we're in the last time and there are antichrists about you. I'm writing to you to tell you, don't let anybody deceive you. The person that does righteousness is righteous. You're not righteous because you claim to be righteous. You're righteous because you live righteous. Because it's demonstrated in your life. Hear his heart. Verse 18, chapter 3. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Again, action to your faith, evidence to your claims. Do not just make statements that you claim. Do not just say you're this way. Prove it. Live it. Demonstrate it. That's what he's saying again. And again, and again, chapter 4 and verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Ah, hallelujah. You can make it. These antichrist, these that have come against you, these that have told you this thing, that you can't live this life, that you can't make it, you can't overcome. You can overcome. You can make it. These false prophets that have went out into the world, these false spirits that have went out there into the world to deceive you and said, don't let any man deceive you. You know you need to live a righteous life. You know Christ is righteous and that we are righteous even as he is. How can you do this because greater is he? Notice this, greater is he that's in you. He has emphasized up to now, we talked about it. You're in Christ, abide in Christ. That's what he said, my little children, you stay in Christ. Now he doesn't talk about them being in Christ, he talks about Christ being in them. Hallelujah. Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And finally, in chapter 5, and uh, verse 21, the last verse, he ends with this phrase, little children, what an ending. Keep yourself from idols. Amen. <laughs> Glory. Not even a goodbye. Not even a see you later. Not even a hope I get to see you sometime. Little children, this is serious. Keep yourself from idols. Don't let something get a hold of you. Do not get you some kind of false notion that you can rewrite this thing because what it was from the beginning it is. So you can hear this thread from John's voice all throughout this epistle, emphasizing, caring, particularly for those who are immature because he knows they're the easiest ones to prey upon and, and reaching to them and say, I'm writing to you. And, and he doesn't mind. He doesn't look and, and stress his authority as, in, in the manner that Paul does. He does stress his authority. But he doesn't stress his authority in the way that Paul does. Paul will write his epistles and, and many times he'll say, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He just tells you right up front, I, I'm the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you with apostolic authority. John doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't say, John, the apostle of Jesus. I mean, he calls himself an apostle. His authority 
that he's preaching to these people because it's not based upon a position. It's based upon an experience. John could have written to them and, and says, I'm the apostle. This is the way it is. I was first. I know what it is. And upon my apostolic authority, I want to tell you, you need to listen to what I've got to say. He doesn't base it on his position. He bases it on an experience. He said, let me tell you, my hands have handled. <laughs> my eyes have seen. My ears have heard. And I am telling you, this is what the apostles did in Acts chapter um, Three or four or five, somewhere in that, that time or, or uh, time frame, when they were before the Sanhedrin and they charged them, You shall no longer preach in the name of Jesus Christ. They said, Well, you judge in yourselves whether we should obey God or man. He said, But we can only but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, they didn't claim at that moment before the Sanhedrin, they didn't say, we're the official scribes of Christ. We're the authorities of Jesus Christ. They just said, look, we've got an experience, all right? We've heard some things, and we've seen some things, and we're just telling the reality of what we've experienced. Glory to God. When you go out to teach somebody, and you go out to witness to somebody, I'm telling you, the most effective witness is an experience. You can win an argument. You can tell the debate. You can say this and that, but as the brother said, you got to have something burning in here. When you've got something that's real and something alive, and that's what John says, I'm telling you that I know you can't walk with this God and walk in sin because I've walked with him. Hallelujah. He doesn't walk in darkness. He walks in light. He doesn't walk in sin. He walks in righteousness. And I know that because I was with him. I'm a first-hand observer and a first-hand witness, and I know that. And that is John all throughout this epistle. He's bringing that home. He's, he's pounding that onto them. He's not commanding them in a sense, do as I say because I say it. He's telling them, look, this is who we are. This is our experience. This is how it started. This is, we have to be reminded of that to tell people this is we are not non-Pentecostals. This thing was born in Pentecost. It wasn't born in a water baptism service. It wasn't born in some ceremony. It wasn't born at the Lord's Supper and a feet washing service. This although that may have its place, this thing was born on the day of Pentecost when the glory of God and the power of the Holy Ghost fell. I'm telling you what the church was born in is where it lives at. That's the power that needs to sustain it and keep it. We have to remind ourselves of those things. Now let's, let's go back. You'll see that as you read it. I want you to go through as you read the letter and see that. Now look back here. I want to emphasize a few things here. Chapter 2 again. Back to this business of the first time he mentions perfect love. Who is perfected in love? The fella, the person, the saint that keeps his commandments, keeps his word. This is the one that walks with him. This is the one that knows him. This is the one that loves him. And his love is perfected. Now I just want to note some things that John says about love throughout the epistle. And again, it's not like I can just take that passage and preach it from that passage. But John, he just comes back and hits these things again 
and again and again. And he's going to tell us some things about this love. He tells us in this passage that it means to keep his word, keep his commandments. But let's look at verse 15 of the same chapter. He mentions this love again. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now notice what he said back in, in the earlier verse. He said, whosoever keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. And then he goes on to tell him, the love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father. He tells us this love of God is incompatible with the love for the world. There's no compatibility. You cannot have one and at the same time have the other. You must either have one or the other. And he tells us that the world is going to pass away and the things that are therein, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this love, he tells us what's in the world, and he's going to mention the world several times throughout the epistle as well. He describes it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, of course, is that of living by the physical, material, and may I even say human sensitivity. The lust of the flesh basically lives life simply from earth's perspective. Your flesh comes from dust. You understand that? Your flesh comes from dust. It is how you communicate to this world. It's how you sense the physical world. It's how you, you enjoy what's in the physical world. It's how you interpret what's in the physical world. I don't need a sermon to tell me if a stove is hot. I just got to get my hand close to it. All right? I'm not going to know the stove is hot by someone preaching to me. I know by just getting close to touch it. The flesh discerns that. The stove is hot. And that's how my, I operate in the physical realm. And the lust of the flesh is basically when you have divorced earth from heaven and you're living on the physical plane. There's no spiritual to life. It's just all physical by your feelings, by your personal enjoyment, by your personal pleasure, whatever feels good. You interpret everything based on, on the level of how you feel and your own sentiments. Your emotions in that sense. Everything is based on that level. And he said, I'm telling you, if you want to live this thing entirely on the earthly level, that's how the world does it. If that's how you love living life, you don't love God. Then he talked about the lust of the eyes. We know what that is. We walk not by, say it, but by. We walk not by sight, but by faith. The lust of the eye is again, it is when you live life based on the seen, based on the visual. In other words, it's not a life of faith. It's a life of the human perspective. If I see it. So we have a world out there that sees that what appears to be happening is that the, the climate is getting warmer. And uh, it's because we've got all these emissions coming from cars 
It's because of what the cows are doing out in the field. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what we got this going on here. And, and we got, and it's causing, it's raising the temperature. And we got to save the planet. I'm telling you, they are willing to strip your liberties and put you in an economical hurt box. And so that, so because they think in so doing, they are going to save planet Earth. But it's all based on sight. It's all based on human interpretation. And there's no, no uh, application to the equation of God. God is not in the equation. When you live by the lust of your eyes, then everything is based on what you see, your perspective, what you want, what you do. It's all lived by how you interpret and perceive things. The pride of life, we understand that. That is when... You consider your own reputation, your own glory, your own, repu- your own uh, person, that that's number one. So this is what John, how he summarizes the world. The world lives by its physical sensitivity. The world lives by its own human perception. The world lives for self. And he said, if that is anything that you live by, you don't love God. Sometimes all you got to do is listen to people's conversation. If you get in a conversation with a brother, there's a hurt, there's a problem, there's an issue, and you begin to talk, you want to settle it, and all the brother can talk about is himself. I've been hurt, I'm offended, you meant this, you did this, you did this, I want this, I want that, you did this, I can do this. Somebody doesn't have the love of God. Somebody's only concerned about self. The Christian says, I love you, brother. What do we need to do to fix this? Brother, I just want God to be honored. I want unity in the body of Christ. And I want us to live for His glory. I want to fix whatever I've done if I can fix it. And I want to change this. And I want you and I to go to glory together. And honor Jesus Christ. In other words, the conversation is not about you. If the conversation's all about you, it's called the pride of life. It's loving the world. And he says there's no compatibility between loving the world and loving God. Notice again in chapter 3, he mentions something about the love. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called. I'd like you to take the word sons there. You can put a little footnote if you're writing your Bible, if you're writing your notes. Instead of the word sons, I'd like you to put the word children. Read it that way. That we should be called the children of God. Now, why do I say that? Because because that's the word. Sons isn't a bad translation. But later on in the passage, the same word is translated children. And if you don't put it as children in chapter 3 and verse 1, you kind of miss what he's saying. Let me read, let me read for you chapter 3 and verse 1. I'm going to read that for you and then I want to read verse 8, 9, and 10 with it so you see what I mean. Now listen to me. I'm going to read verse 1 and then verse 8, 9, and 10. Let me just read it. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. 
Verse 8, he that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil... Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. He is going to talk about in this passage two families. The children of God, two offspring. The children of God and the children of the devil. <laughs> Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And here's what children of God do. They do what's right. They don't live in sin. They live righteous. They live holy. How? Because God's seed is in them. God has birthed them. God has placed in them His Spirit. God has made them partakers of His nature. And that nature does not desire sin. And he contrasts it with the children of the devil. Now John writes, we've heard this language before. And notice the passage. Make the connection here. He talks about in verse 8, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. That is, he's the one that initiates it and starts it. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. What? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 10, In this the children of God are manifested, and the children of the devil. Now Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Flip back to John's Gospel, chapter 8. This man has stuck with this theme. It's been, it's been his theme even in his gospel. He will bring this. Back to John's gospel, chapter 8. Listen to him. Verse 33. They answering him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Hold a second. I want to go back. That's okay. We'll go with it. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now when he said it over there, right, Whoever commits sin is a child of the devil. Here he said he's the servant of sin. Now watch this, verse 38. I speak that which I've seen with my father, and you do that which you've seen with your father. Uh, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that have told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ah, ye do the deeds of your father. They, ye do the deeds of your father. They said, Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? 
even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. What did he say over in 1 John 3? He said, he committed, whoever commits sins of the devil, the devil sinneth from the beginning. Jesus says the same thing. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. And because there is no truth in him, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he's a liar and the father of it. He said, you are of your father. Father, the lust of your father you will do. And John is going to pick up that same theme and say what Jesus, based upon what Jesus said, whoever commits sin, he didn't, John doesn't say he's the servant of sin, he says he's of the devil. <laughs> he said he's the child of the devil. That's going to take him back to John's gospel to remember the words of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, uh, the de- and when Jesus was talking about it, he said, you're of your father, the devil. And basically that's the same way as saying you're the children of the devil. If you're of the father, the devil, you're the children of the devil. And you do the, your father's works. You do your father's lust. He mentions those lusts, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. When they, they're not of God, they're of this world. And the devil's called the prince of this world. He's the creator of it, of the system, the father of this worldly system. He's the inventor of it. He sinned from the beginning, if you will. And Jesus said, I came to destroy his works. He's a liar. He's the father of the lie. He's a murderer. He's a thief. Jesus said, I came to destroy his works. Now, John is going to let us know something. Again, this same theme. Don't talk to me about being able to live in sin and live with Jesus Christ. His whole purpose for coming was to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are sin. If you live in sin, he said you're a child of the devil. You're doing the works of the devil. And Jesus came to destroy those works. He came to eliminate it. He came to give us a new birth. It's John. Paul talks about us being more adopted. That will be his emphasis. In Romans and Ephesians and Galatians, he will emphasize us being adopted as sons. John doesn't talk about us being adopted. He talks about us being born. I'm a son two ways. I've been born into this kingdom. (laughs) And I've been adopted into this kingdom. I'm telling you, God loves me twice. If you could put it, I'm a sum twice over. Either you see it from a perspective of adoption and all the rights that come with it, uh, and that that was, of course, from a Jewish and a and a, a Gentile perspective that that we weren't uh, natural to this thing in the sense that we were we were not the recipients of the law. All that was given to the Jews, and so Paul, looking at it from a Jewish Gentile perspective, looks at us as Gentiles and say we were adopted into it. We're not natural born sons were adopted into it but John is a Jew and he writes this saying and says he knows he's a natural born fella but he tells us all we're born into this Nicodemus you need to be born again and he will write about that and when he comes here he talks about if you're born of God you don't sin because God's seed remains in you behold what manner of love the father's bestowed upon us that we should be his sons and if you're his sons you're born of him and if you're born of him you don't live in sin He's destroyed the works of the devil in your life. You're a child of God or a child of the devil. We are God's family or the devil's family. And all of it is dependent. Visibly, it's not dependent. It hinges upon your birth, but it's visible through your actions. 
If a man is living in habitual sin, he's a child of the devil. If you can love sin, you're a child of the devil. Why? Because you're following his prototype. You're following his example. We are the children of God. He mentions this love in chapter 3 in verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's life. Look the word up good. It's the Greek word bios. It involves goods, but it's like saying, notice the emphasis from verse 16. How do we know the love of God? What did he do? He laid down his life. Jesus didn't have any money to lay down for him. Except that wouldn't have paid it. But think about it. The most valuable thing. What Jesus had, he laid down. It's your life. And the idea is if you have this world's life, you have the goods of this world, you have the living of this world, you possess that, that in your life, your living, you have possessions, and you see your brother had need, and you shut up his bowels, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. How dwelleth the love of God in him? Again, John is stressing how this love is seen in its activity. This love is seen in its character. It's seen in its activity. And he said, I'm telling you that if Jesus laid down his life, he said what we should do is lay down our life for the brother. So what does your life have? If my brother comes to me and I have the life, I have goods, I have my living. I have things that I can do to give him life. Then what do I do? I lay that down for him. I lay down the money for him. I lay down the service for him. I lay down the help for him. Whatever it is that I possess, if I have the life, I lay that life down for my brother. Love is seen in that way. That's how love is is. is Visible. Don't talk to me about loving God, John said. And then you hate your brother and you turn him away. And you won't. You ain't got God's love in you because there's nothing about you that speaks about God. How do we know God loves us? Because of what he's done for us. He made us his children. Woo, glory. He laid his life down for us. This love. He speaks it of again in chapter 4. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God, and he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him, hearing His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now this, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now he speaks to this love again, and it's perfection. It's interesting how this all flows out. Let me see if I can get this. Take this to you. A little bit more time here, and I'll close. Watch Have you seen, he said, notice what he said about love. 
Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. Did you hear that? Everyone that loveth is born. Everyone that loveth is born of God. Let me ask you a question, saying that another way. If you're not born of God, can you love? He didn't say some that love are born of God. Everyone that loves, in other words, John is saying, show me a man who's truly demonstrated real love. That's a Christian man. That's a man that's born of God. I'm going to tell you, you can't demonstrate real love unless you're born of God. Everyone that loveth is born of God. We say, Brother Woods, a mother can love their child, a mother can love their son. That's... There's, there's a natural affection that's lost today for the most part. There's a natural affection that mothers and fathers can have. But I'll tell you right now, you'll find out somewhere there'll be some selfishness somewhere. But show me someone that loves truly as God loves. And the only way you can possess that is if you're born of God. But notice again. In this, verse 9, was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world. Notice, here's how we see it. God sent His Son, verse 10, here in His love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. In other words, love takes the initiative. The love of the world is reactionary love. The love of God is actionary. Active. That was just what He said back in Matthew chapter 5. No different. He said, if we love like those that love us, we're no better than the publicans. That's how they love. We love those who love us. That's reactionary. That is that if you treat me right, then I'll treat you right. But he said, that's not love. Here is love, he said, is that God first loves us. Real love takes the initiative. Real love takes the first step. Real love reaches out the hand first. It doesn't wait to be treated right. It treats right. Amen. That's what love does. That's what love does. Now, and then he says, again, no one has seen God. But if we love one another, then God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, let me see if I can put this together because there's a flow to this. Would you go back to chapter 2 for a moment? And where we started this message this morning. Chapter 2. And what, what does it say in verse 3, please? Someone read it. Make sure you're awake. Verse 4. Verse 7. Whatever am I write, no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have from the beginning. For the old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. And verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in you, and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light is coming. All right, let's understand what he says. Now watch this. He says, here's what it is to love God. Keep His commandments. What's His commandment? He's going to specifically tell us 
now about the commandment that he particularly wants to deal with because it's an overriding commandment. It's an overarching commandment. And he says, the first thing he says is this is not a new commandment. I'm not writing to you a new commandment. I write no new commandment unto you, verse 7. That's what he says. Why is it not a new commandment? Because it's the same thing that God gave in Deuteronomy. The commandment to love wasn't invented in the New Testament. It was given in the law. Matter of fact, before that, because of the illustration that John is going to use later in chapter 3, he talks about Cain and Abel. I'm going to tell you, Cain said, Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And he knew he was. And he knew he didn't love his brother. And he knew he murdered his brother. And he knew he hadn't done right. And he knew he should have done well. All of that he knew. The commandment is from the beginning. Love one another. It's the same commandment. But then John says it's new. Why is it new? He says it's not new in verse 7. And then in verse 8 he turns around and says it's new. Well, what makes it new? He tells us that. I write unto you which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. I'll tell you why it's new. It's the same commandment, but it's new now. Why is it new? Because now we have seen someone who's fulfilled it. Now we have someone who's demonstrated it. And the one who demonstrates it wants to live it in you. Now there's a new dynamic. It's not a new rule, but oh hallelujah. But we've got a new power to produce this. Glory to God. It's the same commandment. Oh, but now you don't just have the commandment. You got the commander. You don't just have the rule. You got the ruler. Glory to God. It's not just a law that's been given to you. The lawgiver himself has come unto you. And now you see truly how this is to be carried out. You see truly how this commandment is to be uh, uh, exacted in our life because Jesus Christ has demonstrated it. He mentions this commandment in verse 9. He that saith he is in light and hateth his brother is in darkness until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So that's what he said. John says the true light is now shining. And he said that light, that light is Jesus Christ. He mentioned it back in chapter 1. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The true light is now shining. The word of life has appeared unto us. And I'm telling you, if you keep his commandments. What is his commandment? Love one another. Love one another. Jesus gave that in John 15. He said love one another even as I have loved you. A new commandment I give unto you. Love as I have loved you. Not love because Moses commanded it. Not love because you feel it. Not love just because his brother but because as I have loved you. There's a new example. There's a new dynamic. There's a new power. Now watch. Love is perfected in you if you keep the commandment. What's the commandment? The commandment is love. Particularly in this passage, he talks about loving your brother. And so again, he'll say, back to chapter 4 and verse 12. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. We know God's love is perfected in you because you keep his commandments. Well, what is that commandment? That commandment is to love your brother. That's how we demonstrate this. As God has loved us. 
And that's what he said in the passage too. God loved us first. He sent his son to die for us. That's how we should love. We give ourselves for others. We lay down our lives for our brothers. We love our brother. We take the initiative. We treat them, esteem them better than ourselves. We treat them uh, and love them and, and do unto them even as we would have them do unto us. That's the commandment. And when you're fulfilling that commandment, that becomes evidence that God's love is perfected in you. I'm telling you, how you treat your brother will determine whether or not you're a saint or a sinner. Is that fine? You can write your brother off. Something's wrong somewhere. Well, how do I know if, it's, if he's your brother, if he's living right? Well, John, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about those that weren't of us. And how do we know they weren't of us? They left us. They went out from us because they were not of us. Now, I got 10 more minutes to close. Verse 17, chapter 4. Verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect. It's talking about perfect love, talking about this love. If love is perfected in you, it keeps the commandment, it loves, its, it loves the brother. That's how we know that love is perfected in you. And the final thing that he says that emphasizes or, or rather evidences this perfect love, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. And he's mentioned that several times as this idea of who he is and how he is. He mentions that back in chapter 3 in verse 1. Again, you've got these threads. John just has several threads that he weaves throughout this epistle. Love, righteousness, the example of Christ. As he is, so are we in this world. What about the next world that comes? We shall see him as he is. <laughs> what are we going to do? I don't know. We'll see him as he is. Our entire life is wrapped up in being who Christ is. How is that possible? Because Christ lives in us. God dwells in us. And God lives in us. And he says that perfect love in your heart, if you are keeping God's command, that's perfect love. And if you are loving your brother, that's evidence of perfect love. And now he says this love is evidenced by the fact that fear has been cast out of your life. God is dwelling in you. You are dwelling in Him. That's how love is perfected. And then He says that this fear is taken out, that you can have boldness in the day of judgment. This love, when your heart is made perfect in love, you have no qualms about facing Christ in judgment. You have no inward intrepidations. You have no inward sense of conflict about facing Christ. I'm telling you, this is, you'll see how this, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm not wrapping it up very good, but this is the theme of the Gospels. This is the theme of the New Testament. Remember what Jesus said? Now, and John said here, and I, I can watch this word quickly. I, gotta, I won't have time to finish this. I'll maybe get to the first one. Herein is our love made perfect, verse 17, that we may have boldness. Now, John will mention this word boldness four times in this epistle. Once it's translated boldness, three times it's translated confidence. But he mentions it here. Let's just look at this context for a moment. In the day of judgment, 
Because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now sometimes people read that love, fear, perfect love casteth all fear. All fear. It, that doesn't say perfect love cast out all types of fear. Look buddy, you can have a heart that's perfect in love and still be scared of snakes. A bear is raging down the hillside at you and he's got slobber coming out the side of his mouth and his teeth are bared and it's a 1,200-pound grizzly and you're staying there. Perfect love casteth out fear. Hey, buddy, you have perfect love all day long. You better run. Or you better cry out to God for salvation. You stand there petrified and terrified. Perfect love doesn't cast out that kind of fear. It casts out the fear of judgment. It casts out the fear that says, what will I do when I see him? What will I do when I stand before him? I'm telling you right now, if there is qualms in your heart and your heart doesn't love him now and there's a struggle within you right now, do not think you're going to face him on that day. The thought Does the thought of facing Jesus Christ cause your heart to tremble and shake out of fear? then there is a lack of love because love will take out that fear, will torment you. We don't live our life wondering if we're saved. We don't live our life afraid to die. We don't live our life afraid and fearful looking for the judgment of God. We live our life in anticipation of standing before the King of glory because as He is, so are we in this world. If God received Christ, He will receive us because we are in Christ. I'm out of time. I'll, I'll look, uh, we'll pick up, we'll look some more about that word boldness. You can look it up throughout the epistle. Yes, sir. This is not a reverence. Yes. There's two, there's two, there's two fear types of the fear of God. Two types of the fear of God. Essentially, there's, there's one type of fear of God that is not mixed with love and faith. It sees His awesome power and runs from it like it would run from that 1,200-pound grizzly barreling down the hill. Because it sees God as a destroyer. It sees God as someone is against them. And they run from that. Examples of that is in Revelation chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, when, when, he, when he unlooses the, the sixth seal, the Bible said they run to the rocks and the mountains and cry to the rocks and mountains of the hills. And they cry... Fall upon us for the wrath of the God of the Lamb is coming. Who can, they ran for fear. The Lord talks about it. And Matthew said, men's hearts failing them for fear. They are shaking because they know they're not right with God. And instead of running to Him, they run from Him. That's the kind of fear He's talking about right here. Perfect love will cast that out. When you get a love for God, you don't run from Him, you run to Him. <laughs> but our love for God does not mean we lose our reverence for God. It does not mean we become so familiar with Him that we can just kick around and just kind of tell Him what to do. No, sir. Our love for God will make us run at His feet and say, Hallelujah to the Lamb. 
hallelujah, to the Lamb. It'll make us tremble before Him in such awe and such reverence. And that, that fear will be a fear that will drive us to obey Him, that will want to please Him, that will want to glorify Him. It will not run from Him, it will run to Him. When you fear God and you're in trouble, you'll run to Him. You'll get to the prayer closet. You'll say, help me, Jesus. You'll cry out and say, Lord, I need you, and I need you now. But if you have the wrong kind of fear, you'll run from the brothers. You'll get out from the church. You'll move away from the anointed preaching of God. You'll get away from the holy book, and you'll turn from everything that is God because it condemns you, it convicts you, and it says you're a sinner, and you know you're under the hand of God's judgment. We need to fear that drives us to him. Fear God and keep his commandments. And see, that's what John is saying. That's what love will do. It has the right kind of fear and it keeps his commandments. Woo, glory to God. And it casts out the wrong kind of fear. It gets rid of that fear that will torment you, that will, will bug you, that will make your heart tremble. And will say, I don't know if I'm right. I'm telling you right now, let the conviction of the Holy Ghost be so strong in us in this hour that we stand in the midst of hypocrites. They tremble and they shake and, and they cannot even stand to be around us because they are fearful what goes on. I pray their hearts begin to to tremble when they get in the presence of the anointed word and the witness of men and women that are true and genuine. I never want a hypocrite to be comfortable in this church. I pray anyone comes in and they are hypocritical that they are the most miserable person on the face of the earth because they're fearful. Let them be fearful because their hearts are not perfect in love. But when your heart is perfect in love, you keep his commandments. The commandment is love. You will love. And when you love as God loves, there will be no fear because you walk with him. You will not fear his judgment because you live in him. And you abide. Hallelujah. Oh, glory to the Lamb of God. You see, that's what they didn't have. In Matthew chapter 7, when they stood before him on judgment day, they called him Lord. They called him Lord. But that's not what it is. I never knew you. What did John say? Whoever keeps his word, that's the one that knows him. <laughs> See, John says to know him is to love him. That's what they didn't have. Jesus said, I never knew you. You never walked with me. You never loved me. You used my name. You did things in my name. Oh, yes, you called me Lord. You made claims to know me, but you never loved. <laughs> oh, no, sir. You loved yourself because you built your works, you built your ministries, you did your thing. But that was all about you. That didn't have nothing to do with me. I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. Your ministry has produced lawlessness. You're a worker of lawlessness. John says, hallelujah, whoever's born of God does not sin. Whoever's born of God does not sin. He says sin is lawlessness. Sin is iniquity. It's a transgression of the law. But when you're born of God, you love God. You love righteousness. You do what's right. And when you stand before Him on judgment day, you won't point to your works. You'll be able to take the hand of the one you've walked with, of the one you've talked with, of the one that has lived with you, and you've lived with Him, and you will take His hand and be ushered in to the portals of glory. Hallelujah. Because love has bound your heart unto His not because of some deeds you did in his name. You care nothing for that. You did it, but it was all works of love. Heaven to you is not gold and silver. Heaven is to forever be in the visible presence 
of the one who died. 